0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's season two of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. We're having a lot of fun. Got a bunch of great guests lined up. We're talking about guitars. Sometimes we talk about food. Sometimes we talk about aliens. It doesn't matter. We're just having a good old time. We're chewing the gristle for pity's sake. You know, and gristle is where fat meets flavor. This week on Chewing the Gristle, the mighty Doyle Dykes, a good buddy of mine and I have to say one of the contemporary masters of fingerstyle guitar, the nicest guy in the world and a great storyteller and of course a frightening guitar player, so stay tuned. Welcome! To another edition of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Greg Koch. I'm very excited today to have my buddy Doyle Dykes, finger picker extraordinaire, thumb picker really, if we're honest. And uh, boy, we've been uh, we've been buddies for a while now. But uh, I haven't seen you in a while, of course, because of of this crazy pandemic that's going on. But um, I was so glad you were available to
1: do this. First of all, how the heck are you down there? What's going on? Don't do- I'm doing great i mean i I'm very thankful i've been uh i'm I've been continuing to work and uh I'm traveling some very lightly but uh yeah i mean I worked all through the holidays and uh, excellent yeah worked in a lot of christmas programs and and things like that so like yeah, it. I've been staying real busy, thank God <laughs> you know, I like to tell a story, doyle dykes
0: about how years ago we were doing something out at the um, guitar center in Hollywood and I was there with my trio for Fender and they were having some kind of like a mini trade show ish thing yeah and I remember. Uh, and you were in the vintage room and um, yeah I got we got done doing our set and I walked in there and you were playing you started off with some kind of a shuffle where it was just you obviously just you playing and I sat there spellbound, and at that moment in time, I, that was my moment where I was like, for the love of God, I'm going to figure out at least how to do some kind of self-accompaniment to the point where at least I can carry off playing like a blues or whatever and have it sound like a little one-man orchestra because of the way that you did it, I thought, this is fantastic. <laughs> now, prior to that, of course, I'd heard, you know, chat and other people, so on and so forth, but that was the moment where I thought, holy cats i mean i've always you know and and since then every time i hear you play i'm like holy caramba it's a glorious thing but let's talk a little bit about that school of playing because it's uh it's it's an interesting thing i always kind of look at it as it's more of a family oriented entree into playing guitar what i mean by that is like i i started playing guitar as you know, kind of rebellion, to be honest with you. I mean, I was really into, you know, uh, Hendrix and Cream originally, and I got into these blues guys. And I started getting into the country stuff later, uh, right around, you know, not too long afterwards. But what I mean by the family-oriented thing, it seems like guys that could really come from the kind of the Chet Atkins, Merle Travis, Jerry Reed kind of angle of guitar it was like there was a family member uh, that played or there, you know, the, the family was, you know, either an uncle or something, or maybe the immediate family, there was music in the family. And it just mm. was one of those things that just took early. Um, I, I don't know why I think that, but it seems to be the case. Everyone I know who that has a thumb pick and do it, it's like, Oh, my uncle, so-and-so taught me how to play that. But it, as I was, I was reading about what you did, you were actually influenced by this, this other individual that you knew through church, right? That, that came in this guy, that was he a sailor or something like that, that
1: yeah, of course. Uh, my dad was a guitar player. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we had Les Paul records going. He's spinning every every day. Chet Atkins, Merle Travis, Les Paul. I mean, I grew up around that. You know. Okay. Well, there you go. And so I I'm had an uncle in, So i not incorrect. <laughs> well, I had an uncle Doyle. His name was actually Doyle. Everybody called him Smitty Smith. Hi. And he was in the music business, but I never really knew until I got older uh, how much uh, involvement he had in, in country music. Uh, but he was my mother's brother. So I had music on my dad's side and on my mom's side. Okay. And, uh, and I'll tell you more about that later because I have an interesting story about Uncle Smitty, uh, as I would probably call him around his, his peers, you know. And I, and, uh, and, and I got to, to talk at, at length to a lot of people that knew him and told me how much of an influence he was on them, which I never knew. And Grandpa Jones, uh, Roy Clark, people like that, uh, Little Jimmy Dickens—I had no idea growing up. But I was raised in church, and so Dad was a guitar player. He played uh, his three thirty-five, and uh, and then I was playing my flat-top guitar um, when I was just a kid. But yeah, after church one night there was this uh, sailor because I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, his name was Barry Lackey. Well, I call him Barry the Sailor. And uh, <laughs> Barry the we Sailor had sailors Man. all the time. <laughs> well, there were sailors coming to church all the time. We didn't know if it was for God or girls, but we were <laughs> anyway. Whatever and this one was <laughs> well, this one was God and I think guitar, and because uh, the guy could play, and he he asked my dad if he could play his three thirty-five after church and. And he says, "Sure, son, play us something." And I'm, I'm going, "Well, that's unusual, because Dad was real particular about his guitars, you know." But and uh, and then he just starts playing this Chet Atkins stuff and Merle Travis, and I'm going, "Oh my God, that's what I've been wanting to do all my life." And I I would hear it on the Chet records, but I didn't understand it. Right. But it was very much like a piano, you know. Right. And so I ran to my mom. She was out in the audience. I could see her out there talking to somebody because we'd hang out and jam on stage after church for an hour, hour and a half, whatever. It was just kind of a fellowship time, and uh, and so I ran. I said, hey, "Can we have that sailor over for dinner?" Of course, dinner at her house even now is is like lunch, breakfast, dinner, and supper
0: at right, her right, house. Right,
1: right. We had him dinner, so we had him all all afternoon, and he and he taught me this real simple. Little uh, yeah, finger picking thing, and he, he showed me a Merle Travis lick or two, and that got me going. That was what really, really changed my life. And It's amazing how you, just a few minutes showing a kid something like that can actually change their lives. Right, right. Well, it's an interesting, uh,
0: it's an interesting style of playing because, as you said, when you're listening to it from afar and not really looking under the hood, it seems impossible. And then all it takes is a, a, a little, as you said, a little entree into the mechanics of it. And then all of a sudden it seems possible. And then your ear can kind of get around. At least it was for me. And then, you, you know, you're able to listen to the records and go, oh, now I can kind of figure it out. Whereas before it just seemed like this
1: unattainable voodoo. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the other thing is, too, is I, I can't afford a bass player and a drummer like you.
0: another Uh, funny memory i have as far as you know all these different you know guitar oriented things over the years that we've been you know get together guitar players get together for various different you know festivals and trade shows and this and the next thing is that the first uh james burton guitar festival down there in shreveport and at the end of the show uh you were talking with Steve Warner and you were talking about old chet tunes. And at that point I dipped my toe into learning some of these tunes and I was yeah. familiar with, you know, <laughs> the library a little bit, knew a, a few of them, haven't ventured to some of them, and knew that, you know, the various different complexities of these different tunes. And 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 you were talking about um, a particular tune, and I can't remember what it's a uh dick, 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 tick, 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 Yeah, that, that? one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what it is. It's uh, that sounds like
1: all my tunes, actually.
0: <laughs> yes, but it's, it's a song that's extraordinarily difficult. And and I just remember you two talking about, man, and you said something like, Oh, that song's a real bear. And I thought that is the understatement. I just said that was my favorite expression. I, I would use that every now and again. If
1: something was really hard, I go, oh, That's a bear.
0: It <laughs> sounds like it might be Blue Angel. I think Blue, I that Blue Angel. Thank you. Uh, well, Steve it.
1: nailed it, man. He he really really played it, it so good. You know, you get around some of these guitar players that really studied Chet, right? And uh, of course, that was a Nato Lima song. He wrote that. Uh, uh, Taba, Taba Harris, uh, Los Indios Uh, You know, they they were a big influence on Chet. And Nato Lima actually wrote that song. That's an amazing story, those guys. But, yeah, I mean, Steve, man, he he came from that same school, but he's from Kentucky, you know, originally. And uh, he he just has that. I think it's in the water up there. But uh, it's an amazing thing. But when I, um, along with Steve Warner and, and Chet Atkins and Merle Travis and Jerry Reed and, of course, you know, Tommy, mm-hmm. uh they put me in the the thumb pickers hall of fame in yeah. Muhlenberg County, Kentucky. And that, it was at the Merle Travis, uh, performing arts center. That was a dream. I mean, when I, when I saw Muhlenberg County, uh, I, I, it was like something hit my chest, you know, and I, I just knew I was in uh, like hallowed ground sort of, so to say. And, right. and so when they, they gave me that award and I did a show for them and all that stuff. But, after it was over, uh, I called Barry Lackey. He was the first guy I called, and uh, and I said, Barry, had it not been for you, and and I lost contact with Barry the sailor for thirty years because ah, okay. he got shipped out. And uh, yeah, I wrote about that in my book, but it's Barry the sailor. It's another story. We may not have time for everything, but it's a miracle how he came back into my life, and uh, and has been ever since. Excellent.
0: You know, I did. I remember I, you. You gave me that book when we were at uh, Music Mesa uh, uh, when it first came out. Was it about 2011?
1: Yeah, I think that's about right. Uh, wow. uh, Lights, so Lights of key. Martha, right? Wow. Yeah, The Lights of Martha. I guess it has been that long. It's golly.
0: And uh, I remember I got it, and I was so jet-lagged, I read it in one night.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't write it in one night. (laughs) Man, that's pretty good. Well, you know, I did the audio version, too, and I read it myself. And I I looked at all these other authors and guys that uh, even one of the president, former presidents, had written a book, and he read his own audio book. And I thought, well, I'm going to read mine, and and dang, you know, if I thought this is a really great read, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the cool, the cool thing about it, it was in Chicago, not far from you, and it was at the top of the Moody Bible uh, Institute, and it was a an old recording studio. They said it was the it's the oldest studio, or a radio studio and recording studio in the country. Ah, and it was 1920. Four twenty-five. instead still have the solid mahogany door. A lot of guitars could come out of those, just that one door. And, uh, and I had these old mics, RCA mics and all this. Stuff. And they had closets uh, because they used to do the moody radio Bible hour, you know, and, uh, they would have these sound effects cause they'd, they'd uh, tell stories, you know, inspirational stories. So they had all these sound effects like they used to do years ago. And as I they're fascinating. And I got to do my audiobook in that studio. It was pretty cool. You know, just curious, when you're when you're doing something like that, how,
0: how big a chunks are you reading at a time before they say, okay, stop, don't do that again? Or do they just <laughs> let you go until you mess up and then you you start over again? Or how how does that usually work?
1: It, I mean, it's just kind of ad lib. Every day is a little bit different, but I mean, you go in and just start start reading and and uh just do my best, you know. Uh, and if I flub up, you know, uh, the good thing, the key is to have a good engineer, just like when we record music, you know. But uh, when you write the story, it's like it's so familiar to you, it's it seemed to be a little easier. If I if I've been reading someone else's book, it would have been a lot harder, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but why would I do that? <laughs> right?
0: Well, you, you never know, you never know. <laughs> I, I was thinking about the quote that. Chet Atkins said, I'm going to, I'm, I know it's not, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was along the lines of, uh, if I don't practice, uh, if I miss a day of practicing, I notice it. If I miss two days of practicing, my friends notice it. And if I miss three days of practicing, uh, everyone notices it. And, and, and I think that's a funny story in the fact that the kind of playing that Chet does and what you do, I mean, there's, there's such a level of arrangement to it, but in that level of, uh, of a set, piece, there's also room for embellishment and improvisation and so on and so forth. But there's such a a, a a quantity of muscle memory for the intrinsic parts of the arrangements that unless you work on those every so, more often than not, that statement of Chats is pretty true. So I I was curious, as, as far as your show is concerned, how often do you say, okay, well, here's the, the set grab bag of stuff that I'm really at uh, you know, battle preparedness with. And mm-hmm. then I've got all these other things that are kind of, I could probably pull off, uh, but I would rather, you know, spend a minute to kind of work on and so on and so forth. And how much do you have to practice to keep those, kind of, or, or have you done it for just for so long now that you can just kind of pull it out of the hat and away you go?
1: Well, there are some, of course, you know, that you do. Then we have anchor songs that Old Faithfuls, you know, and people expect to to hear, you know, my new one now, newer from the past three or four years, I guess, has been guitar poor. Yeah, it's a, a good one. Thing, and I know. can relate. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, one of those things where, you know, sometimes you're playing, you do this, and all of a sudden you find yourself playing this and, oh, my God, why don't I start this off? Can I do this? Right, And, you know, but something just inspires you to, you know, play something that you just recorded, but I never played that in front of anyone, you know, and, and you're in the middle of it. And, uh, but, you know, it's kind of like you, uh, you kind of get to the point if you screw up, especially if you do it later in the song, uh, you're among friends, you know, and nobody's going to really care if you do. Right. And so you just give it your best and, and keep going, you know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes somebody will say, can you play Misty Nights in Tokyo? I couldn't play that now, I don't think. But something that I wrote years ago or something, you know, yeah, you have to really woodshed to to relearn. Of course, you know how it is when you write a song. You write it, and then you have to, all those embellishments that you do, you have to learn how to do those. You can think of them before you can do it a lot of times. And then it takes practice to put it all together where it flows, you know, right. smooth. But Chet, you know, being in that sort of Chet school, Merle Travis too, they didn't play, they never played anything in, in Les Paul. They never played it the same way twice. Right. Now, I mean, I don't mean every time I get them to do I'm talking in an arrangement. Right. You know, if it repeats... You do a key change or, or you know, you play the melody on the lower string, you know, and then go back to the high string, things like that. So you, you try to keep it interesting. And I think Chet had such an elegance to his uh, arrangements. Right. That, uh, I, I was hoping some of that rubbed off and maybe it did. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Um
0: uh, I was actually talking about this with Dick Dickerson because he's he's writing a book about Merle Travis. I don't know if you knew about that. It's uh, he's doing like the I first, like detailed, you know, re- researched biography of, of Merle Travis. So I'm looking forward to reading that. And we were we were just kind of talking about how. You know, Merle's playing in his conception of, of, you know, basically the stride piano is basically what I think he was going for, if I'm not mistaken. It, it, there just seems to be a little bit more of a, a greasy groove to it as opposed to Chet, which is more of this kind of stately galloping horse. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. There just seems to be... Um, but, you know, a guy like you takes and, and will we'll kind of dip into both. And I'm just wondering how... How much you kind of work on that or you just kind of say, because I mean, I, in in my own position, I was like, okay, well, those guys do that. I'm going to do this where I'm just going to add a little bit more syncopation or whatever else. But I'm wondering if you um, specifically in your mind go, I'm going to do a more chat cleaner thing on this, or I'm going to do a little, little more greasy, like Merle, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are those songs where uh, you know, I had to pick up Uncle Doyle's old guitar uh and and uh it's an old pre-war Martin. I have it right back here. And to get that grit sound, I mean, you gotta have a guitar like that too, you know. And sometimes, oh my gosh, uh I mean, nothing nothing else works but like that in your face sort of Travis thing. And that's right. the way he was. And uh, but I'll, I'll go from some of that finesse of the Chet style and then and then work the Travis thing in there, too, you know, because he wasn't in your face uh, player. And so was so was Les Paul, you know. And it's funny because Chet was this uh, country gentleman. Right. And then you meet Les Paul. I'm talking about that when you meet them and their personalities, right. you meet Les Paul and he's one of those. Hey, how you doing? You know, right, and right. he's right in your face. And they're playing's that way. Right. You know, it's it's amazing that, and uh, but Merle Travis was uh, he was he was a really fun guy to be around and uh, he was very friendly and spent a lot of time with me. Uh, I, I'll never forget one time Grandpa Jones. I used to play guitar for Grandpa and and he and Merle they you know they're from uh, I think there's only like one county in between in Kentucky and uh, in their early career they had a group together called the Browns Ferry Four with the Delmore brothers and then, in the early King records, a uh, grandpa, uh, old Rattler and all those songs that he did, that was Merle Travis playing guitar. Ah. So when the Opry, uh, when the Opry curtain would raise, um, can you hold on a second? I'll, I'll get this. Uh, by the way, yeah, the the case is just as interesting as the guitar.
0: Yeah. <laughs> is that cool? That's cool. Yeah,
1: that's pretty cool. But uh, this is the old, and uh, so uh, this is an old. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I haven't played guitar today. But the curtain would raise. Yeah, <laughs> but it was just that, that, that kind of in your face. And the difference, like, uh, Merle is his style is. Let me tell you the story. So, Grandpa calls me up on the phone, and you never had to wonder who it was. He said, Get over here. So, Grandpa, <laughs> he sounded just like he did on Hee Haw, you know. Right. and uh, And he said, Bring that big guitar with you, which was an L5. Than I had. And I'm thinking, what's he, what's he wanting me to do? And so I, I pulled in the driveway, in a long driveway, and I see this white Cadillac. And uh, the closer I get, I'm looking and it says 16 tons. And I'm going, oh my God, Merle Travis is here. And he didn't warn me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm about to be, I mean, that, that'd be like you meeting uh, Clapton when right, right, you were right. just a young kid. You know, I was 20, 20 I think I was 21. And so here's the guy that I listen to every day since I was like 12, 11, you know, and, and even before that on dad's stereo, but when I got really interested, and so he spent the whole day with me and uh, he was such a gentleman and he, uh, uh grandpa actually took uh, a bunch of photos of us. None of them turned out, not one, <laughs> but he ran and got his old Webcor recorder and he recorded us and I still have the tape. And uh, in fact, I put it on. And so it's just uh, us jamming together, you know. Awesome. And so what do you do when you're playing in front of Merle Travis? I go. <laughs> and uh, he's probably thinking, uh, do you know anything besides Burl Travis song? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know, you just don't know what to do because uh, you know, I just wanted to see share- a I just that I know you're, I, I, you know, you're doing it because you appreciate it.
0: Right, exactly.
1: But uh, but he said, well, you know, I'm more like a honky-tonk piano player. That's what he said to me. Ah. And so uh, Chet, I heard him say one time he was a stride piano, it, which it. is like. Right. On, like a piano, like a, a gospel piano player. And gotcha. uh, I told somebody, yeah, I'm like a gospel to, I'm a gospel guitar player. My left hand doesn't know what, what my right hand's doing. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> a, a, a scriptural. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so uh, Chet was like that, you know. And then Mer- that was um, and then Merle Travis. Right. It's like blump 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 blump. It's
0: got more and of that kind of blind
1: blake. You know, the yeah. rag, ragtime thing happening. It, it was more of a ragtime blues player, you yeah. know, and it was like bump, 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 bump. Instead of mm-hmm. five, four, six, four, five, four, six, four, you know. Right. And that's more chip. And so yeah. there's a lot more in your face. <laughs> so cool.
0: I'm so glad you had that guitar handy. That's magnificent. Is that a, what is that a D45?
1: Yeah, yeah. It it was retaught back in the fifties. I don't care. It sounds good. That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> you got to throw a little Jerry Reed in there too. So. Love it. Yeah, but you know what's funny is uh, years ago, uh, you know, I've done a lot of church work. Uh, After I left Grandpa Jones, I started playing churches and things. Then I went into like a youth pastor position, and then I started at my own church in Florida. And I pastored there several years, and even my wife said, you need to go back on the road. That's what you do best. So I think my Picking went over better than my preaching. So um, <laughs> I knew it was time to go. And I wanted to leave the church in good shape, you know, and we built this building. I wanted to leave it debt-free. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I couldn't do that. I didn't have the money to do that. It was just a small place. And I was outside of Jacksonville, Florida. And so God spoke to me, and I think he spoke to my heart. It, and not, not an audible thing, but I knew in my knower, that God spoke to me to get the biggest thing I had away. And he would do that. He would take care of it. And I knew what it was. It was this guitar. And I inherited it from my mother's brother, Uncle Doyle. Okay. Or Uncle Smitty, you know? And uh, and so I knew that Roy Clark knew him because Uncle Doyle, I still have the letters in my guitar room, when uh, when Uncle Doyle would write me, he said, Roy Clark's gonna be on the Beverly Hillbillies show. I mean, for a little kid, that was so interesting. And then we'd watch Roy Clark and uh, he would talk about him uh, through the years and we'd visit him, we'd uh, go to my uncle's house and he'd had all these cowboy boots and cowboy outfits. and, And to this day, that's why I like Western things. And so he was a huge influence in my life, my uncle. It was a great musician, incredible harmonica player. I mean, the best, it was just unbelievable. But anyway, I gave Roy Clark the guitar. He was coming to town at a fair, and I, and uh, when he saw the case and he saw the decals, he says, I know what you have. That's Smitty's guitar. Yeah, yeah. I said, Well, he's my uncle. And I said, That's my uncle Doyle. I said, uh, Anyway, uh, I said, Oh, well, I used to play with Grandpa Jones. He said, Yes, I remember you. And I said, Well, Uh, I want you to have this. And he just got all teared up, you know, because my uncle, um, he told me one time, he said, uh, uh, Roy borrowed that guitar to play at at, uh, Madison Square Garden when he first made it big. He asked me if he could borrow the Martin. And I was doing a show at the Smithsonian with Grandpa Jones, and I borrowed the guitar. And so he just happened to say that to me, you know. And then it was about... um, I don't know. Probably about six, eight months later, he passed away oh. and I inherited the guitar. So it meant the world to me. Roy had this guitar for 30 years. No, I gave it to him in 1988. And uh, it, my mother said to me about a year and a half ago. And she says, I wonder what they're going to do with that old guitar. You think they're just going to put it in some dusty museum? I said, I don't know, mom. She said, well, his wife might give it back to you. I said, well, mom, you reap what you sow, not where you sow. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm not going to ask for that back. Well, you know, well, let's ask God. He could do it, you know, but his, his manager was a good friend of mine. And I, and I told him, I said, well, you know, if she ever decides to sell the guitars, let me know. Because I gave him one, one of those uh, guitars. I, I'd like to at least have an opportunity. You know, never heard anything for almost a year. So he called me one day, and he said she was finally able to go through Roy's stuff because emotionally she couldn't handle it. Sure. So she had his lawyer and had a, a guitar raiser and, uh, and Richard Kennedy, his manager of over 40 years. And Richard knew me from way back, you know. And uh, when they went through the guitars, he opened a case to this, and here's this guitar. Right. He said, you know what you have here? And she said, well, all I know is that was his favorite. She said he wasn't sentimental about many things, but he was about this guitar. And then Richard said, well, I think I know why, because uh, uh, that was a gift from Doyle Dykes. It was his uncle, Smitty's. She said, Smitty Smith? And he said, yes. And she said, from Washington, D.C.? Well, that goes back to Doyle and his family. And so after all those years, after 30 years, I got the the old Martin guitar back. So sometimes you do reap where you sow, but uh, but anyway, I cherish this, and that that's a just one of my guitar stories. <laughs> that's a great story. You kidding me? Yeah, I just made. So it your up. uncle lived in the no, DC no. area. <laughs> Say it again. So your uncle lived in the DC area. Yeah, he did. You know, in fact, I've talked to Eddie Stubbs. You know, that used to be on the Grand Ole Opry on uh, WSM. He just retired last year. And uh, you know, we would talk about the influence in music from the D.C. area. And because uh, at the time, Nashville wasn't really considered Music City, not at that time. Uh, one of the first studios to go in there was King, you know, where Grandpa recorded. That was one of the first sessions. And Harold Bradley told me some of this stuff. And, uh, and then of course, um, from the Washington D.C. area, there was Jimmy Dean, the Sausage uh, King. right. Jimmy had his own show in New York, and my uncle used to work with him was it, and, and played with him, and then, and then he played with Grandpa, played with Grandpa Jones. And I didn't tell Grandpa this, but here's an interesting story, too. Uh, uh, when I was with Grandpa Jones, he was writing a book. You know, when we were riding down the road in a bus, you know, if one of us was driving, he'd sit there and, on a yellow pad, and he would write out, he'd do two things. He would write out the menus for Hee Haw. Cause right. he haul was huge then. Hey, Grandpa, what's for supper? Remember that? Right. Yeah. 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 Cornbread, turnip greens, candied yams, butter beans, blackberry cobbler, and all things rare. The more to eat, the more to spare. You know, things like that. <laughs> and uh, so he was writing all this, and people used to ask me, "What did you learn from being with Grandpa Jones?" I said, "Well, two things. I learned uh, uh, an appreciation for old time country music, which I didn't know much about, and then I think I learned how to tell a story." and uh, and how to relate to an audience. I learned a lot from Grandpa because he was always just himself. And so when he was writing his book, years later, I got a copy of the book. And he said, I learned how to tell a story and how to tell a joke with a sense of timing and how to relate to an audience from a guy named Smitty Smith, ah. my mother's brother. And then years uh, uh, after that, I was with Roy Clark, and Roy spent about an hour and a half talking about uh, Uncle Doyle. And he said, if it hadn't been for your uncle, I'd have never been on Hee Haw. I'd have never been able to do a monologue and fill in for Johnny Carson. He Ah. taught me show business. He taught me a sense of timing, how to tell a joke, and how to relate to an audience. He he said the same thing that I said and that Grandpa Jones said. So sometimes you don't even know what's in your own DNA. Right, 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 right. And so for all those pickers out there, you never know sometimes what's on the inside of you. I mean, they may think, oh, this is Greg. He was born with it. I was born with it, both sides of me. You never know what's on the inside of you and where your music can take you, too. It's crazy. Crazy stories, Doyle. I dig it. (laughs) <laughs> well, we're all different, you know. I mean, I remember, too, the same. I mean, if we weren't all different, ain't like, like my granddad said, everybody would be wanting my grandma. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> We'd all be wanting the same thing. <laughs> but <laughs> so uh, the, th- the thing is, I remember meeting you. I remember coming out uh, 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 from the little uh, side room, the vintage room, and, and you were there playing with your band, and I'm thinking, where have I been? I mean, I, 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 used to work in Nashville. I was in the studio stuff and I did all that for years. And where have, where have I been? How come I don't know Greg? And I mean, man, you were just, um, um, you just flipped me out. I just couldn't believe the way you played a guitar, but I said, but he's, he's not the same, just Nashville chicken picking. He's got that, but he's got something else that's just different than anybody else. And, and uh, but I'll never forget that. And of course, you become you know, a household name here. And my son, he said, you know, he tells me, he tells me the other day, and he he's like Mikey, he hates everything. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> he said, Dan, I think Greg's my favorite player. He said, I just I just love what he does. He can do anything, he plays it all, he plays it all well. And you're a grand entertainer. So anyway, oh, me, coming from you, it's it's Rodriguez high too.
0: praise, but thank you. I like to say, fooled him again.
1: absolutely
0: (laughs) we interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at Fishman Transducers makers of the Greg Calk Signature Fluence Gristle Tone pickup set, can you dig that and our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains Well, I'll tell you what, you know, it's 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 something, you know, I, I've been teaching a, a fair bit of Skype lessons during, during COVID, and I enjoyed doing it. And, and inevitably, people will like to say, what's going on with your right hand there? And I've always been a pick and, and fingers guy because um, that's what I started playing. You know, I didn't really, you know, when I started getting into the chicken pick, I actually learned it from, um, first from Mark Knopfler. And so I would kind of ditch my pick and do my, you know, thumb and fingers. And then I started going backwards and getting back to the, uh, you know, James Burton, then going into chat and so on and so forth. So I started to develop the the pick and the fingers. Uh, but I always tell people, it like, look, if I could do it all over again, I'd play a thumb pick. Because the things you can do with the thumb pick and your fingers is infinitely more... I mean, the the thumb pick and your first finger are better wingmates than when you take your finger out of commission by holding the pick and then your middle finger has to fulfill that role as what your first finger would be. So, you know, talk a little bit about how, I mean, over the years, have you realized, oh, boy, it's so much more of a... Um, I'm able to do so much more as a result of playing with a thumb pick or have you felt over the years, man... There's some things I can't I can't quite do with the thumb pick, but I don't really think there is. Am I right? I mean, what are what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I mean, I hear I hear some guys like Brent Mason that I don't think he ever takes a thumb pick off very much, and he still sounds great playing lead. You know, right? I never thought I sounded as good playing lead as you do. You know, and uh, it, and like Jimmy Caps was very very close friend of mine. We lost Jimmy last year. I, I dedicated my latest album to him. But he had such a sound and, and a smooth sound, and and way back Billy Grammer, remember Billy Grammer, the Grammer guitar? No, Billy I don't. was the well, he was the guy that actually uh, uh, introduced me to Grandpa. He's the one that recommended me for the job, and he also was uh, was a good friend of my Uncle Doyle. And so anyway, he had a, a he called it a round tone. And he and he and it was the pick that he used. He used a small little jazz pick, right. you know. Yeah. He had a sound that I I never have been able to achieve that, you know, but we're all that way. I remember one time Steve Malden, who used to he's a great arranger uh in Nashville. He he does things with movies and he's done a lot of big TV shows. Great arranger, but he was also a great bass player. And he worked with Chet for a while. And he said, The only time I ever saw Chet get nervous was when uh, Christopher Christopheropher walked in ah. and he said he and, and and he said he was just so cool he's a cool looking guy had a couple of girls with him and and he's sitting there because he loved Chet you know and then Chet got flustered because he loved classical music and because he knew Segovia you know right but he and he knew that Chris was his protege. And he never could quite get that sound because he played with a thumbpick. So nobody's ever completely happy. right? <laughs> Martin Offler calls this the smallest amplifier in the world. <laughs> and so, I mean, and, and but if uh, if I was Martin Offler, and if I was you, I wouldn't change a thing because you guys just do it so very, very well at what you do, you know. But in what I do, I think because I do solo most of the time, I'll I have to say the thumb, the thumb style, uh fingerstyle guitars has, has served me well. Um, in terms of,
0: you know, I'm interested to just know what, what kind of rock or or blues or things maybe people wouldn't necessarily think. Oh, Doyle's into that stuff. What what were some stuff when you were growing up that that w- would be kind of outside of the norm <laughs> of what people would usually think that you'd be into? <laughs> Uh, guilty
1: Mark pleasures, Farner. if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Mark Farner, I thought they were great. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, but,
0: and, that live uh, record, when I was a kid, that live, um, my brother had that, my older brother was 14 years old, and he had that Graham Fuck Live at the Atlanta Pop Festival record. It was the
1: best, I, one of the best rock records in history. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, come, I came from Jacksonville, Florida. You'd think I was more into that you know, than I, than I was. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I used to like to hear that kind of music, but I knew it wasn't me. I'd, I'd mess around with, with some of my friends and we'd go play grand funk and Chicago and, you know, everybody wanted it. Right. You know, and, uh, and now I try to play it by myself, but, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where you, you glean from all that, but it never was in my wheelhouse. And just down the road on the west side of Jacksonville, uh, if you're on the west side of Jacksonville, and I was on the east side, if you're on the west side, you're a cowboy. I mean, because people out there had horses. <laughs> you know, uh, I had a friend of mine that was, uh, he got me in listening to country music. He lived on the west side. He went to my church. His dad had, an, I have a picture of me playing my Jaguar and uh, my first electric, and he was playing his dad's 54 Strat. And I'd go to his house on Sunday. He'd come to my house sometimes, and then I would ride his horse because we didn't have any. I was raised in the city next to the shipyards. But if you were out there, you were like there was a, a cowboy spirit. That's even where all the Western shops were, and that's where Leonard Skinnerd came from. I ah, got it. And that, and that's also where Jeff Carlisi. All those boys lived on the west side, and there was a different feel to the city. There was a different feel in their music, and. Uh, but the interesting thing is that uh, I talked to Ronnie before he passed away. I went to Alan's house one time, and I was just a—I was just a kid. My wife and I, Rita, we were uh, just just married. I think I was uh, uh, nineteen, and she was eighteen. And uh, at that time, I may have been twenty; she may have been nineteen. You know, but when I went there, all they wanted to hear was Merle Travis. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the the all that kind of stuff, right, right, and, right, and uh, uh, and then Ronnie, Ronnie said something. He said, "Well, what, what, do you, where do you play?" And I said, "Well, I, I play at church." Or and how'd you learn how to play? I said, "Well, I think, you know, the Lord just put the right people in my path." And he said, "And you play? Well, what kind of music do you play?" And I said, "Well, I play." He said, "Gospel." <laughs> and he said, "And you play at church?" He says, "I, I got you." And he said, well, we were all raised in church too. In fact, that's where we learned how to sing. And uh, that's where I really learned how to get into music, was playing and singing in church. And so a lot of our background was that. And uh, we were all raised in a Pentecostal church. So there was a lot of fire in it, you know? (laughs) I mean, when dad would kick off a song. Uh, He was Les Paul. That's before he got into finger picking, you know. And we'd do that in church. So one day I was at the Iridium, and I said to Les Paul, I said, man, we had you in church every Sunday. (laughs) 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 Well, I needed to be in church. (laughs) 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 But we took those influences, you know, even from things that weren't Christian, and you could use them. You wouldn't do that in some of the other churches around, you know. Right. liturgical, but you could at our church. So a lot of that fire that uh, Ronnie had and the boys had in, in Skinner, a lot of that I think came from their background of of uh hearing some of that fired up music. It's My crazy. opinion. I like it. <laughs> I like it. And also free and Clapton and all those things. You know? yeah 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 yeah. Well in terms of uh
0: you know you sent me some uh <laughs> Some pictures of some guitar. We we're talking about the tune guitar port. You have some magnificent old guitars and, uh, but I know, you, you know, you, I think you kind of get rid of some and get some other stuff. You'd like to buy oh, and sell yeah. a little bit yeah so what, what, are, I, what are your current faves and what are some things that you would never part with under any circumstances obviously well we just went
1: out to kelly's well. we went to kelly barbers oh he's a character that fellow yeah action <laughs> he's anyway he's in his little town hawkins texas and right who, who knew you know he would uh it just i mean he's it's my favorite place to go and and so uh I went over there and I had these old guitars. I thought, I'll, I just don't use these anymore, you know? And they were different things that I just didn't play anymore. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just trade them for a couple of things. I did not want to carry this around a lot. So he had an old 55 D28 and uh, and I got that. And then he had a, a a 1965 Burgundy Mist Jaguar and I got that. And then he had a 62 black original Jaguar. I got that. And then he had a '67 Jaguar. <laughs> I got that. <laughs> and then he, <laughs> I came home with four Jaguars. He said, "Well, take this one too. You might like it." And it was a reissue, 20 years old. And I'm—I I'm I'm kind of even embarrassed to say that, but I mean—and then I—I I got a, you know, the gold top and and some other things too, you know. But but uh, but I traded off the uh, the '58 Telly that I had. Okay. All right. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, that was my guitar, and I traded that off uh, because uh, the story was I went to Fender, you know, when I was with Gil. Right. With Fender. And Larry Thomas uh, invited me to the factory in Corona, and he said, I want to give you a, a personal tour of the factory, which is really cool. There's a the CEO at that time right. of, of Fender. And uh, and so he took me around, and I said, well, I want to show you something. I have my 58. And he said, is that a real 58? I said, yeah. And, uh, and so he brought, he asked one of his guys to come in and he said, uh, can do you mind if we check this out where you're with Larry? And I said, no, not at all. So at the end of the day, they said, do you mind if we keep this a little longer? And I said, well, I know where you live. And, so, <laughs> and they had it for three. This was like September or somewhere in there. And they had it to the Nam show. And so what they did, they, they copied that guitar and they made the American standard 58 after my guitar. Oh no way. And then they gave me the uh Chris Fleming signed it. He made the guitar. He said, Here's the first proto. And uh and he gave it to me. Nice. And one day at a show, I said, Well, I would have never been able to have that guitar had it not been for Kelly Barber. Right. And I said, Kelly, come up here. And he came up and I gave him the prototype. Nice. And then I thought, well, those guitars have to be together. So last week I said, Kelly. You're getting the 58 back. Now those guitars are back together again. So guitar stories, they go on and on. But and they're just things, but things mean a lot. I think God knows that with a guitar player. Yeah, the guitars uh had inspiration. I couldn't get a for some reason I kept thinking about a um a, a Jaguar because uh I was at my mother's house and she had a picture of me and Timmy, the guy that on from the west side of Jacksonville playing our guitars. And I had my Jaguar, and I thought, I wouldn't mind getting an old Jaguar again. I came home with four. Now that was about two weeks ago. Now I have four of them. So, uh yeah, they're all fun. But you know what? I got flat-top, star-star, steel-string, string What was it? I got flat tops, steel-string, string solid-body, hot-body, six-string, 12-string, acoustic, resonators, and more. I got cutaways, non-cutaways, upper-cutaways, flame-tops, gold-tops, jumbos, dreadnoughts, double loss, triple loss. Man, I'm guitar poor. guitar poor. Guitar board. Oh Lord, won't you help me on guitar? <laughs> uh sorry. Fantastical. I, my I love it.
0: <laughs> well, I suppose we should talk a little bit about what's what you've been doing during COVID. I mean, it's it's weird times. Of course, I've been doing stuff in my room here. Have you been getting out a little bit? I mean, what, what you have been doing?
1: Well, you know, when it, it first it first hit, I didn't know what I was gonna do because I was on these uh I think you were on some of these things. I was on guitar festivals and Copper right. Mountain and then uh, Tacoma, uh, Washington, and, at, and and also at huge churches and things like that. It all went away. And uh, I was booked at this church in California for an Easter thing and uh, 15,000 people. And it was gone. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And so, I, you know, I felt impressed in my spirit, in my heart to – do videos for churches that are going to obviously have to go online, right? And and they could not they couldn't bring guests in. I didn't charge anything, and uh, I just started sending out videos uh, just for them. I talked to them just like if I was there. You know, it's, it's great to be at First Baptist here in you know and uh, wherever uh, in Texas or whatever, and uh, and I did them from. Fort Myers, First Assembly of God, Fort Myers, Florida, all the way to Calvary Chapel, High Desert in California. And we reached over eight, we had over 80,000 hits that day, which they say is two plus people per hit. So instead of reaching 15,000 on Resurrection Day, Sunday, we um, I reached around a quarter of a million people. I was on a live stream that night, too, that was 125,000. So we're looking probably somewhere around 400-plus thousand right. people. And right. so, yeah, I mean, the, the opportunities are there. You know, uh, I'm going to get spiritual on you for a second. But I came up in this room. This is not my guitar room, obviously. But I came up into this room, and I had my cup of coffee, and I'm thinking, I looked something something, and I never walk up here. For some reason, I have my coffee. And uh, and so I, I said, God, what am I going to do? I mean, it's all gone away. What do you want me to do? I know you're going to take care of us because I believe that. But what do you want me to do? And I walk just a few feet from here is our bedroom. And outside the bedroom is a, a, a ledge. And um, so I tell people I learned, a, I learned a new word during the pandemic. I don't know how to spell it, but it's, here it is. <laughs> how do you spell that? And so anyway, here's how I learned that word. I was I was looking over uh, out the window, and on this wall came this little sparrow, and he just sat there. And and he just kind of looked this way, and he looked that way. And then he pecked on something on the wall, and I'm thinking, what's he pecking on? I do just have my coffee and looking at him, you know. And I'm thinking, you know what, even in Scripture it says, you know, what's the value of uh, five sparrows for two pennies, yet God watches over every one of them. And I thought, that's sweet. You know, here's this little bird. And I was just reading that stuff. And, uh, and and he pecked on something again, and it just kind of flopped. And I'm thinking, well, he's got a worm. And the worm was as long as he was. <laughs> and so help me, he pecked on it again, he threw it up in the air, and he opened his beak, and that whole worm just slid right down his throat. The whole thing. <laughs> and so then he goes like this. And he just kind of looked like he was smiling. And then all of a sudden he just went. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't hear that, but I could see it. That's what it sounded like he did in my head. <laughs> and uh, and I got all teared up and I'm thinking, God, you know, I know you're going to take care of us during this time. And he, and he spoke to my heart. And I, I don't say that very often. I really don't, but I've said it like three times on your show, but he spoke to my heart. Not only am I going to take care of you, I'm going to bless you. And when I do, I want you to receive it just as joyfully as that little sparrow did. And uh, because it's going to be different, it's not going to be the same, but you're going to, I'm going to bless you. And there have been times where I thought, wow. Wow. Thank you, I mean, when I loaded up at Kelly's the other day and I had four jaguars and a fifty five you know martin d twenty eight and then I got one of my Olson's back and some of the other thing, you know what I did? I just went <laughs> <laughs> I can't afford that stuff you know, I can't afford that stuff, but it's it, it's good and uh and because uh you know, I think the one thing I feel right now that I should be doing is equip equip myself, you know. And uh, sometimes equipment is part of it. It's not all of it. You know, I know guys, they have a lot of equipment. They can't play very well because they haven't equipped themselves, you know. Right. And so thank you for what you do, helping people, encouraging people. That's a huge thing, Greg. You don't know what a blessing you are to people. I mean, you really don't. Because when you're on it, like, you forget the pandemic, you know, you forget all those other things, and you're in Greg's world. And so <laughs> that's a great thing. So I, I can call you Reverend <laughs> a Mary Heart Reverend, a Mary Reverend heart. Gristle. Well, if if a <laughs> if a Mary Heart does good like a medicine, then you're Doctor Gristle. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. Well, listen. Thank you so much for spending some awesome time. It just been an absolute pleasure. Such a such a great bunch of stories, great hearing you play. The whole thing was just magnificent. So we we appreciate it. And this will be airing at, it'll be on wherever, as I like to say, wherever uh, podcasts are cast. It will be out, uh, yeah, I don't know, probably in a month or so I guess we're out. So looking forward to joining it amongst the, uh, the other ones. This has just been an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much, Doyle, and I look forward to hopefully seeing you and playing with you at some point in the not-too-distant future future. Feature, future, I don't know what I'm saying, but it sounds good. I'm I'm up for it. So you take yeah. care of yourself. Thank you so much once again. And, uh, boy, next time I see you, bring that Martin along. I'd like to see that up yeah, close. Yeah, well, I'll
1: be. I can't wait for that to happen. We'll be watching you all the time, believe me. All right,
0: big- my friend. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. God bless. See
1: you soon. Bye-bye. bye bye
0: Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.